0: Tristan Gruno, and this is Hokkaido 150. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Annalise Allen, Associate Professor in the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultural Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Dr. Allen is the author recently of The Fabric of Indigeneity, Ainu Identity, Gender, and Settler Colonialism in Japan. Dr. Llewellyn, thank you so much for talking with me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You recently published this book, The Fabric of Indigeneity, where you map out this intersection between indigeneity and gender amongst the Ainu community of Japan. So could you tell us about some of the main themes of the work and some of the main arguments that you're making?
1: So, I think the starting point of the book is that I want to present an argument about how Japan, a nation in Asia, which we tend to think of primarily from the lens of Japan within the Asian context or Japan in relation to the West and the sort of process of modernity and Japan's transition or sort of shift to modernity vis a vis the West, we tend not to think about Japan's own sort of imperial project and its own settler colonial project within What we now have kind of naturalized and accepted as the sort of time immemorial boundaries of the nation of Japan. And if we think about the history of the Japanese archipelago from the perspective of the Ainu community or from the perspective of Okinawa, from that matter, there's nothing at all natural or preordained about the current boundaries of the nation of Japan. Uh, So starting from that perspective, the book is taking as its sort of foundational argument the notion that Japan itself is a settler colonial nation. And this is not a past tense condition. This is, in fact, an ongoing process of settler colonialism and Japan itself is a settler occupying state. And in terms of the book's focus on Indigeneity and gender, I'm interested in how Ainu women in particular have played a very important role in authoring and leading the Ainu movement for Indigenous rights, but also have been a very central force in the work towards cultural revitalization And honoring the memories, the histories, and the practices of their ancestors, both through language as well as material culture. This, of course, extends into foodways and song and dance, really every aspect of life. And women have really been at the center of that movement.
0: And at the center of that movement, going all the way back into the 18th century, even, I understand your more recent work is also looking at the activities of Ainu women in the community as far back as the 1700s.
1: Yes, correct. So one of the, the important ways that I suggest we need to think very critically about the history of Japan's um, colonial project in Hokkaido is that, in fact, it is. The official sort of dates for the political or the colonial settlement of and claims on the land stem from 1869, but I argue that if we were to take uh, Ainu women's perspective seriously and try to understand their experiences at the center of our understanding of the colonial process, we would in fact have to move that marker all the way back to 1799 and perhaps earlier. And the reason is that in the 1740s, the Tokugawa shogunate had given permission to the Matsumai domain to control the fisheries in Hokkaido. They had leased land for what were known as the contract fisheries. And under the contract fishery system, Ainu communities were forced to become laborers, helping with fishing. Essentially, this is a herring industry, which was thriving in Ezo at the time. And so essentially what happened is ethnic Japanese went into Ezo, sent laborers that were recruited from across Japan, and these laborers essentially went into Ainu communities, recruited Ainu men to work as the actual laborers at the fisheries, and then women were sent to completely different areas of the island, were separated from their families, and they were forced to work as cooks to supply the fisheries. They were also working in gathering kelp and helping with processing the herring meal into fertilizer, which then was sent back to the rest of Japan. But the important part of the story here is A, that the women were completely separated out from their husbands and from their families, and many of them were actually already married, which made them vulnerable to the predations of these Wajin laborers and the Wajin managers at the fisheries. And then from 1799, the local wives policy was implemented by the Tokugawa government, which essentially gave permission, in fact, ensured that all wajin who were coming and being sent to these fisheries would have access to, would in fact be granted an Ainu woman to serve as their wife. So when I say wajin, I'm referring to ethnic Japanese, and this is an ethnonym to distinguish essentially ethnic or biological Japanese from indigenous Ainu, and and wajin would be the majority uh, Japanese folks, the laborers who are coming in from mainland Japan and working in these fisheries. And many historians up to the present have argued that this was simply a policy that was instituted in the contract fishery system. I took a step back and through looking at Ida women's cloth and the patterns of embroidery and patterns of resistance that Ida women had begun to introduce during this time, suggest that women themselves were taking every creative measure they possibly could to protect themselves, to protect their bodies from essentially what was an institutionalized system of mass sexual assault on Ainu women. And so this is the argument that if we see the colonization, the settlement of Ezo and of Hokkaido from the perspective of Ainu women, we must start that clock much, much earlier and That in order for us to sort of really understand the process of colonialism, we cannot simply focus on land, on administration, on what was happening at the level of the Tokugawa authorities. We have to actually be in communication with and try to understand Ainu perspectives themselves, and that would radically force us to shift and sort of rethink the way we understand this history.
0: And that's a great reminder about how looking at the history of Ainu women is a perfect way to decenter, or we might say, denationalize Japanese history. And when we do denationalize Japanese history and talk not about the history of Japanese modernity from 1869, but maybe we can find an alternative modernity. And as you write about in the book, maybe we can even find indigenous modernity. Could you tell us what you mean by that term?
1: Absolutely. Indigenous modernity is one of the frameworks I use in the book to try to understand what it means to be both Indigenous and celebrating and honouring the traditions and the practices of ancestral Ainu even of Ainu grandmothers and grandfathers that one grew up with in one's home community, or even in urban centers, how one merges that really critically important defining perspective with the process of flexibility, the process of adaptation, the process of incorporating things that are useful, essentially, things that allow one to survive and prosper in the present, despite the incredible violence and the incredible pressure of settler colonialism. And so essentially, Indigenous modernity is a way of arguing that Ainu have not simply vanished, despite the sort of vanishing race narrative and the hand-wringing of all of the salvage anthropologists who were rushing around trying to collect Ainu material culture, Ainu tools, etc., to create collections in the museum so that there would be some remnant of Ainu culture, quote unquote, when as they expected, no Ainu were remaining. This is sort of the the discourse of the vanishing race of the Ainu. Set against that is the reality of Ainu survival is the defiance of Ainu against all attempts of the Japanese state, all attempts of the settler colonial project in Hokkaido to eliminate, to force Ainu to marry with Japanese partners and to essentially hybridize and to be absorbed into the the bloodline of the Japanese race. And this is the kind of the logic that was being employed by the Kaitakushi or the Colonial Commission in Hokkaido during the early Meiji, actually. So that would be like 1870s, 80s-ish period of time. And so against that logic and against that discourse in the book, I'm offering examples of a range of different creative approaches to fully embracing and celebrating one's Ainu ancestry and one's Ainu identity in the present. And, and I think one of the important things to keep in mind here about modernity is that when seen from an indigenous perspective, in many ways, there's really nothing new quote-unquote, about modernity, because it's essentially a process of adapting, of being flexible, of incorporating the kinds of changes that are necessary for your communities to survive, and by the same token, rejecting the kinds of practices that will inhibit your community's ability to thrive. For example, it's honoring practices of when you go to gather certain kinds of wild plants in the forest. You don't harvest every single plant that you find, you only take a small portion, maybe a third of them or a fourth of them, and you always leave the roots intact. And this is a lesson that I learned from my own Ainu grandmother, Toya Masaki, who I talk about a lot in the book, much of the book is inspired by her. So she embraced a kind of indigenous modernity, which is that we learn from our ancestors, but we also develop techniques for survival in the present. It's a very creative and a very kind of, essentially, it's it's resilience, right? This is what allows indigenous peoples to thrive in the current moment.
0: As you said, Ainu certainly aren't this disappearing or vanishing race, but in fact, there are many programs of revitalization in Hokkaido, bringing back Ainu language, for example, other types of practices.
1: Yes, absolutely. So in terms of Ainu cultural revitalization, there is a very strong movement that has actually gotten its impetus from really critical work that Ainu women themselves were leading really from the 1960s, from the post-war era on to the present. And many of these were focusing on material culture, on embroidery, on weaving and basketry, and these kinds of initiatives that were happening very much on a small scale. In 1997, the Japanese government introduced the Ainu Cultural Promotion Act, which is essentially the state coming in and saying, we will provide a certain amount of funding to support these kinds of cultural initiatives. But essentially, they retained control over deciding what constitutes, quote unquote, tradition and what is not valid and therefore will not be funded. So... That actually, on the one hand, it introduced a lot of support for promoting aina culture, for um, learning about aina practices, this kind of thing. But on the other hand, it also introduced a lot of controversy because certain people were appointed as gatekeepers and were basically empowered by the state to judge and determine what kinds of practices Uh, could be treated as traditional, quote unquote, and official, officially sanctioned, and what kind of practices were seen as too innovative or too sort of creative and therefore would not be funded. So that actually introduced a lot of problems. But one of the really fabulous and interesting innovations, actually, that Ainu women were truly the leaders of since the post-war era is this effort to relearn. So in many cases, many Ainu elders had grown up in communities where there was so much stigma, so much racism attached to being Ainu, that their parents had not passed down any of the Ainu cultural knowledge or even language to them um, in order to protect them from prejudice and discrimination in Japanese schools and in Japanese society. So one of the really fabulous um, initiatives that has been happening is Ainu elders and Ainu women have been going back to communities where there were elders who still had this knowledge. This was happening predominantly in the late 70s, 80s, and early 90s. Elders who had learned that knowledge from their youth and spending time doing like a short homestay with them and learning how to do weaving, how to do embroidery in the tradition of a particular region of Hokkaido. moshiru Ainu-Moshiru would be the traditional Ainu name for the island of Hokkaido, the Ainu homeland. One of the exciting pieces of this process is that Ainu women themselves were focusing on how to relearn this practice, relearn this knowledge in their very bodies. And so they were focusing on kind of a muscle memory or somatic bodily memory. So, for example, there's one amazing Ainu cloth artist who has done a tremendous amount of research in learning how to physically embody the posture of her elders and her ancestors. For example, all the way down to the way that she holds her legs, the way that she holds the cloth, researching what kind of tools would have been used, And even using parts of her body, for example, the span of her hand would be one measurement, the span from her wrist to her elbow would be another measurement, actually using her thumbnails to etch into the cloth itself, um, instead of using a pen or other, you know, more contemporary forms of techniques to actually do the embroidery and make the heritage robes. So her entire sort of practice is to learn how her ancestors and her elders actually embodied and embedded those techniques in their very physical bodies as a way of sort of relearning what it meant and re-inhabiting those spaces, but also re-inhabiting Ainu cultural practice. And I was just so inspired and amazed by this profound love that she has and that many around her have for their ancestors, this profound respect For the knowledge that they have and the incredible work they've done to bring back and really revitalize an entire body of knowledge and creativity that otherwise, in many cases, was limited to museum collections. But this is an incredible part of the movement, and I think we can learn so much from what these Ainu women leaders have done. Hokkaido 150
0: hosted by Tristan Grunow at the University of British Columbia, located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Musqueam First Nation. For more videos and information about Hokkaido 150, visit mejihiat150.arts.ubc.ca slash Hokkaido 150. All music copyright Chikar Studios and used courtesy of Okidab Ainu Band. Thank you for listening.